Michael Kanan, who uh, has made a headline for missing six of his eight field goal attempts this year, is now back to just punting and kicking off. The former St. Morton Anderson is here for most field goals. Look out! Right through! A kick block by Steve Gleason! It is scooped and scored by Curtis DeLoach! Well, somehow, Don, we have managed to do 49 of these shows. Yes, we have. And we are sitting here on November 8th, 2011, in what was a beautiful day in Buffalo, New York. No snow yet, nothing like that, just beautiful sunshine. I played ball with the dog outside all day. Nice. And I got myself ready for what is episode 50 of the Sportscasters. My name is Steve Bennett. My co-host is Don Russ. Don? And we have a great show for you today. We have Mike Tirico, the play-by-play man yeah. for the most important sports program of all time, Monday Night Football. And we also have someone who is very important to the existence of this show, someone who has influenced us, hopefully good, <laughs> <laughs> Dave Damashek will join us. And also we're going to talk football Serious football, numbers stuff, stats with Kerry J. Byrne from uh, coldhardfootballfacts.com and Sports Illustrated. It seems like we had to have Sports Illustrated part of this show in some way because they have meant so much to us in the 50 episodes. We wouldn't be here, I don't think, without the writers that grace the pages of Sports Illustrated every week. No, I think you could safely say that probably 50% of our guests have been from Sports Illustrated. And they've been so good to us. Guys yeah, like yeah. guys like Lee Jenkins and John Wertheim and Stuart Mandel and Luke Wynn, those guys have been made themselves available at times where I never thought we would be important enough for people to make time for right. then. For example, Lee Jenkins came on during the day of Game 1 of the NBA Finals. Yep. You know, Luke Wynn came on the Tuesday before the Thursday of the NCAA basketball tournament. You know, those guys have made themselves available at times when you wouldn't expect a, a podcast like ours to be important that day. But they've made it important. So I want to make sure we thank them. I also want to make sure off the top that we thank our parents, especially my mom and your dad, yeah, who have spent so much time. And I don't know how big of a sports fan your dad is. Average. My mom is probably the same. Yeah, yeah. Av- maybe a little bit above average for a lady. <clears throat> but they've spent hours and hours listening to this podcast and making us feel good about the work that we do. And I have to thank them really with all my heart for bringing us to this point. I also want to thank Andre Reed, Katie Baker, and Jane Levy because they were our guests last week on episode 49. And if you haven't had a chance to look at it, I th- listen to it. I think Don and I walked away from it really feeling good yeah. about the work that we had done. And the same is true of episode 48 the week before with Lee Jenkins and uh, who's the other Damon guy? Hack? Damon it? Hack. Yeah, yeah. Damon Hack. Uh, so go to our website. It's www.sports-casters.com. If you're joining us for the first time because you're a big Mike Trico fan or an ESPN guy, go to our website, www.sports-casters.com. Check out episode 49 with Andre Reid, former Buffalo Bill. 
Katie Baker and Jane Levy of Grantland. You know what I realized, not till after the fact, but Jane Levy was on the BS report recently. Oh, yeah? So she basically spent her time on the number one sports podcast of all time, the BS report, and ours. Yeah. <laughs> and honestly, yeah. honestly, I listened to the Simmons interview, and it was, it, was, it was fine. It was great. But I didn't feel like Jane gave it any more importance than she gave the time she spent with us. Yeah. And I felt like that was a compliment. Next week, just we'll talk about it more later, but Jeff Perlman, the author of Sweetness, which is an incredible book, is going to join us. Also, Steve Russian, who was supposed to join us today, but really hasn't had any power for the last two weeks because of the storm oh. that hit Connecticut. He was one of the unlucky ones yeah, yeah. who has been – I think he said something about his electronic toothbrush at this point. It's out of battery. It doesn't even work anymore, yeah, because you can't charge it. And John Wertheim, a great friend, is going to join us next week. Uh, let's get this going. Let's get episode 50 going. I'm pumped. Let's start it off as we start all of our episodes off with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Okay, so we've been kind of keeping up on this story the last few weeks. We've talked to people like Lee Jenkins about it. We're going to talk with a play-by-play man who covers the league, Mike Tirico, later in the show about it. But the latest news, and this is fresh news, this was 3.40 p.m. today. The AP reports that Union President Derek Fisher says his order from the NBA players are clear. No deal. Uh, the NBA had proposed that players receive between 49 and 51% of basketball-related income, uh, though players argue it would be nearly impossible to get above 50.2%. Players have had until Wednesday afternoon to take the deal. If not, the next Offer is expected to call for rolling back player salaries, uh, 53 to 47% uh, revenue split in the owner's favor, and essentially a hard salary cap. Uh, the union executive director, Billy Hunter, says that as much as the players want basketball, they're still of the mindset that they don't want to accept a bad deal. Uh, Hunter says that the players want to want to negotiate, adding that he will reach out to Commissioner Stern on Tuesday or Wednesday to see if they're uh, willing to return to the table. So basically what that all means is that we're one step closer to the reality that the NBA may not play a season this year. Yeah, not at all. Because the NBA owners are getting to a point in the negotiations where if their offers aren't agreed upon, their next offer is going to be worse than the last one, which is a really dirty negotiating tactic. (laughs) Yeah. It's certainly not negotiating in good faith. No. If you've ever watched the show Pawn Stars... Uh, this is a totally different thing. But the old man, when he negotiates, he'll say, how much do you want for that? And they'll say $50. And he'll say, how about 40 And they'll say, how about 45 And then he'll say 35 Yeah, yeah. Right? And part of it is him being funny and a character on the show. But part of it is kind of an old school look at negotiating. Right. Where the person who feels like they control the power, in that case on Pawn Stars, he's the one with the money. And in the NBA's case, the owners are the ones with the keys to the door and the, the power to turn the switch on the lights. 
they're 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 at an impasse and they're not going any higher. So that it could mean it could mean there'll be no NBA. Yeah, the NFL lockout felt like it lasted forever. It felt like all you heard about were lawyers. 101 and days, I think. 101 days. But that said, most it, of those days were in the off season. We're in the off season. It almost feels like they started this too late. I, I believe last week on the podcast we said that was supposed to be the opening day of the NBA. So now we've already missed a week, and they're they're nowhere near close. It sounds like so. I mean, if I was a betting man, I would not bet on there being any games this year. And I think if you're looking for what's the date, the last possible date to start, it's probably Christmas. Around the halfway point. Christmas is a day where the NBA usually is the only league going. Okay. You know, they usually have really big games. That's the day that they play the Lakers and the Heat kind of a game. Right. You know, that's the day that they had Shaq versus Kobe for the first time. And if there's no basketball by that day, by the start of 2012, we're probably not going to see it for this season. And it's it's not going to break my heart. No. I mean, it is what it is. Right. I mean, I'll be more than glad. I prefer college basketball. I'll probably watch more of that. And I'll continue to love hockey, hockey and yep. watch that every night. And if the NBA doesn't want to play, then they're just going to be less and less relevant on things like this podcast. Right. Absolutely. College football. Uh, if you're a fan of college football, you have to accept a few things as a fan of college football. One is that a loss can end effectively end your season. Uh, you as an Oklahoma fan always complain about that, and I'm sure any fan of a team that seems great that just is off for one day complains about that, but it's something you have to accept as a fan. The other is the computer being or the season being determined by things like computers and uh, polls and yep. Of things of that nature. And the last thing that has become more common, almost like the steroids in baseball type thing, is you have to expect a bending of the rules a little bit. Um, you don't have to like it, but it seems like every team does it. And we asked someone, can you even be competitive without it? And we weren't sure if you could. Right. What you don't expect to have to accept is sexual harassment. Uh, child endangerment type cover-up criminality stories yeah just just out and out it's one thing to try to get a competitive edge it's another thing to just try to keep your name clean in the name of uh while spitting in the face of like just human decency and it appears that's what penn state has done um jerry sandusky who was a defensive coordinator at penn state supposedly has had up to eight, I believe, sexual abuse charges from different boys. Uh, and what's maybe not worse than that, but almost on par, is that people knew about it and didn't do anything about it, at least as far as going to the law is concerned. Uh, it's believed Joe Paterno knew about it, and rather than going to authority figures, went to someone up higher on the ladder than him, kind of washed his hands of it. And uh, it's... Jim Rome said it may be the most uh, disgusting thing that's happened to college football. It, it's got to be up there with the worst thing that happened to any sport. Um, college football has its black eyes as it is, like I said, with the bending of rules. But this, for a school that's typically considered relatively classy, Joe Paterno uh, is, always, is, is a legend. Yeah, and before a few days ago, he was a guy that could probably have stood up and said, I spent 50 years or more here, and I've run a 
pretty clean program. Yeah, he's done it the right way. Right. But is, I think the biggest thing is that someone had witnessed Sandusky molesting a 10-year-old boy in a shower. Right. And that's kind of in the initial yep. – That's kind of when it was initially reported to the team. And apparently people had sent the word up the chain of command – and somewhere between the football program and the administration, there was a failure in truly pursuing the criminality of this. Right, right. And I don't know why. Why would they want to protect this guy? I, I don't understand that either. I know these people can be like parents to players. I mean, they're people you trust your kids with. But if you're Joe Paterno, even if that's your buddy, I mean – there's certain things you can kind of overlook your buddy or go to him and say like, hey, man, what's up? But this shouldn't be one of them. Things like this have crushed the Catholic Church. Right. You know, taking away the credibility of a 300-year-old religion. It shouldn't. It's a no-brainer. I mean this – and, you know, there's been talk for a while now about the end of Joe Paterno. And unfortunately – yeah, it's not. Gonna... I think it, everyone wanted him to be able to end it on his own terms. I think that's why he's been. There, there's no doubt that he's been kind of a figurehead the last few years, right? You know, his sitting his up in the role box. hasn't been. I bet he's one of the least. Well, I don't know. I, I don't know what his role is as the coach there, but I know he's a lot of help, right? And I, I think because of all the help he's had, no one has necessarily forced him out. They haven't won as much as they have before. I know that right now they're about 12th. They've only had one loss all season. They're having a good season. And now this, this has ruined that. And this has hurt college football. This has hurt sports. Uh, this has hurt everything. And I, I feel very badly for Joe Poznanski, who was on this show, episode 6, before anyone knew about this show, and we were having 15, 16 people download it. Right. Joe Poznanski was nice enough to be on this show. He's in the middle of writing a book about Joe Paterno. He's in the oh, middle yeah. He's in the middle of doing, taking himself away from the podcast, as he's called it, taking away from his blog, spending his hours and his weeks and his nights focusing on this, and now what do you do? You have to include this. I, would assume, I mean, You can't not it's include It's almost like it. this has to be half the book. Right, right. And uh, what do you do? Because you, seems... like, you have people like Matt Millen, an alumnist, uh, someone who's been proud to be a Penn yep. State player for years, crying on ESPN saying, if we can't protect our children, who can we protect? Right. And it, it seems like he was, in addition to crying, he was almost yelling, uh, scolding Penn State. Because at this point, it feels like they're handling it all wrong, too. They're not putting these people's feet to the fire. They uh, canceled the press conference with Joe Paterno today because people wouldn't, the reporters wouldn't agree not to ask questions about Which they the case. Uh, but, I mean, what are the reporters going to ask? Are they going to ask yeah, about Nebraska? I mean, the reporters absolutely have the right to ask. Right. If, if you're not ready to comment, if it's for legal reasons, cancel it. I, I think that was kind of the right thing to do in a way. You know, because they, they're going to have to sort things out with lawyers, what can be said, what can't be said. So maybe today wasn't the best day for a press conference. But eventually you have to face the music here, right? Right, and I guess that's the tough part is uh, it is America, and everyone's supposed to be innocent until proven guilty. 
it just appears that this guy is guilty and that enough people have known about it that uh, the presumed innocence has gone on for too long. And the internet is doing a great job covering it. SportsIllustrated.com has a PDF copy of the findings from the grand jury against Jerry Sandusky. There was a story that came up today that <laughs> Jerry Sandusky's autobiography is unfortunately named Touched, Touched. Yeah. which is just makes you want to <laughs> yeah. vomit. Yeah, that's, that's terrible. It's an awful story. And it's an awful story that comes a few days after we should be talking about LSU and Alabama. Yeah. We should be talking about the great game that Oklahoma State played between uh, with Kansas State. We should be talking about the end of Ryan Broyles' great NCAA career as he broke his leg or towards ACL, excuse me, last week and ended his career at Oklahoma. We should be talking about Andrew Luck as he prepares. Yeah, maybe his biggest game. You know, for his biggest game against Oregon. But instead... We're doing what we've done every time. It seems like we have Stuart Mandel on this show. What do we talk about? Scandal. We right. talk about a death penalty potential scandal at Miami. We talk about a scandal at Ohio, Ohio State. State. Yep. Now we're talking about Penn State. And it's just, it's gross. Yeah, college football can't get out of its own way as far as all this stuff goes. It sucks. All right, let's lighten it up a little bit. My second thing. Uh, there is a radio host in Cleveland named Tony Rizzo, who is the host of the really big show on ESPN Radio in Cleveland. And he has had enough with the Browns, and he had a bit of a meltdown on 1540 ESPN in Cleveland. Let's play the clip. This is ludicrous. This is ludicrous. Why don't I, as a season ticket holder, tell the Browns, call me when you're good? <laughs> I'm not watching this experimental laboratory test tube crap. But don't start giving me this, hey, man, this year is all about, I don't want to hear it. I'm frustrated. I'm tired of watching crap. <laughs> it's been crap for years. It's Groundhog Day. We haven't had a playmaker on offense in five years, and I'm sick of it. I want to win. And I'm tired of people telling me that I got to watch this crap in order to get there. Can anybody turn around my team and make nope. us a freaking winner in less than seven years? Uh, all right. We'll stop it there. That goes on for six minutes. Yep. That's not short. That we, we could, what do we play? 45 seconds there? Uh, about a minute. We could play five more. Uh, he had a meltdown. Tony Rizzo had a meltdown, and it's funny, and it's fun. But you know what? I'm with Tony Rizzo. If I was a fan of the Cleveland Browns, I would have had enough by now as well. And you know what? I had, a be I had higher expectations for the Browns today. You can watch the rest of that clip on SportsGrid, who we reference a lot. They have some really they're – not, they're not the, the – TMZ. They're not the TMZ. No, they don't uh, like to be sports, known as that. But they are. Uh <laughs> there's not much more to say. It's just I wanted everyone to know about it because it's funny. And, you know, Chris Russo, the Mad Dog, who used to be a part of the Mike and the Mad Dog show, had a right. similar meltdown a few years ago when the San Francisco Giants were eliminated from the playoffs by the Florida Marlins. And there's a fantastic clip, if you, if you Google it, where some brilliant kid just did an unbelievable word-for-word -word mockery of it, <laughs> which is hilarious. But, yeah, the Browns are awful. Colt McCoy has taken a huge step back this year. Uh, Peyton Hillis, who had a good season last year, is proving that he's really just a fullback. 
there's all these wide receivers on the team that were supposed to be fantasy sleepers like Greg Little, Greg Little and, yeah. uh, Massaquad, Massaquad, yeah. who are these guys? They, they're nobody. And uh, Joe Thomas is probably the best player on the team. And I went through a long stretch as a Saints fan where the best player on my team was Willie Rofe, a left tackle, and it's no fun when the best player <laughs> on your team is a left tackle. So uh, sorry, Browns. Uh, another football uh, disappointment, I guess is the best way to put it. Albert Hainsworth has been once again cut, this time by the New England Patriots. Uh, he's cut after, I believe, something like three tackles and no sacks this year. Uh, it happens after he got in a scuffle or a confrontation with defensive line coach Pepper Johnson. Um, Albert Hainsworth is 30 years old, which is old-ish for a lineman, but it's not. It's far from ancient. He still could have good playing days ahead of him, but his problem is his attitude. He's just got a lousy, lousy attitude. And I wonder if this at this point is he might be less desirable than a guy like Terrell Owens, who at least seems to be physically in shape and maybe can offer something to a team. Albert Hainsworth is shooting himself in the foot ever since he got that huge contract in Washington. Yeah, you know, one thing, this stuff doesn't fly in New England. No, absolutely not. And that was that was proven today. You wanna you wanna not produce on the field and then you wanna fight with our coach? Goodbye. Yeah, they they proved it with Randy Moss uh, belittling that caterer or whatever he did last right. year, and that was it. That was the straw, and they just weren't going to deal with it anymore. And good for New England. Yeah, uh, they're a, they're a, they're a strong program. Yeah, you know that Belichick has what Belichick wants, and he took a chance on Hainsworth when many people didn't want to. And the reason that it made sense to a lot of people is because we knew that Belichick wasn't going to be a guy who would let a guy like Terrell Owens or Albert Hainsworth ruin his locker room. And the second Albert Hainsworth made a wrong step, his next step was out the door. So good for Bill Belichick. And you know what? I don't. I, I, I think there's a chance that Ocho Cinco could be next. Yeah, I don't see why not. He's I been, mean, he's towing the line. Uh, he's not. He hasn't been a distraction, but he hasn't been a good football player. Yeah, I guess it depends. I mean, if they need a roster spot, uh, they're not going to save one for him. So who knows? Is that it for Albert Hainsworth? It it might be. I, who else is going to want him? I mean, you've got you had a a team in Washington that's willing to overspend on anybody. Uh, not that he's not a talented guy, but I mean, it is what it is. You've got a team. In New England, who people think the opposite of, who the type of thing where if anybody can control this guy, New England and Belichick can, and they proved that they can't motivate him either, apparently. So I, I don't know who would take that chance. The Bills need a defensive tackle. I wouldn't go anywhere near him. Not me. I wouldn't want him on my team. And you know what's scary about a guy like him is that he can't stay in shape as a football player when he practices every day, right, plays right. every week. He's only 30 years old. What is his weight going to be at 35, at 40? You know, he, he's one of those guys that it's scare, I'm scared for him. You know, but yeah, he, did, he did it to himself. Yeah, a lot of times when linesmen retire, they uh, actually lose weight because it's hard to keep that weight down while working out that much and running around and everything. And usually you see the opposite, like quarterbacks and wide receivers will gain a little bit of weight. The linesmen tend to slim out a little bit. But, yeah, you're right, this, this guy, who knows? All right. Another guy who's been a guest on this show is AJ Delirio from Deadspin.com, one of the most influential blogs in the sports blogosphere. And he dropped a bomb 
on ESPN this week. Uh, last month, um, ESPN announced it was eliminating its bi-coastal 25-person content development department, which was responsible for the network's 30 for 30 series, among other things. The head of the group is a guy named Keith Klinscales, and he was ESPN's senior vice president for content development and enterprise. And he has left the company to be a producer. Uh, well, he is leaving, and he did a really strange thing. He and his lawyers filed a preemptive lawsuit denying a story that Deadspin hadn't printed yet. So basically, Deadspin got some information. AJ Delirio got some information about a potential ESPN scandal. Well, as they got this information, they checked sources, they sent emails, they found, they they made phone calls, and the lawyers of Keith threatened to sue if this story came about. Well, the story was eventually released. Now, the most damaging part of the story is that allegedly Keith Klinscales masturbated in front of Aaron Andrews on a cross-country flight. That's classy. <laughs> Supposedly, they were across from each other, and Aaron Andrews looked over, and there he was rubbing one out. <laughs> now, like staring at her or just... Happened to be, I mean, either way, I guess it's not right, but I mean, one is slightly more creepy if he's just staring at her while he doesn't. It's a crazy story, and I could never be able to explain all the twists and turns in it. I encourage you to read it. It is at deadspin.com. It's one of the biggest things they've ever published. It has 200,000 likes on Facebook. Wow. Um, and I just liked it on my Facebook. And put a note that it was my third thing. So if you need a way to find it, that's one way you can. Uh, it's a crazy story. And James Andrew Miller, who is the author of the ESPN Tell All book, just happens to be getting ready to release the paperback version of that book, yeah. which is going to have some new stuff. And <laughs> this could be part of it. So look into it. Read up about it. I couldn't be able to explain all the twists and turns of it. But know that the nuts and bolts of it is that an ESPN executive jerked off on a cross-country flight <laughs> in front of the poor, seemingly sweet Aaron Andrews who's had to deal with this. I know. She can't and have... some scumbag who followed her around and filmed her through a peephole right, of hotel. her hotel room. Yeah, women get have enough trouble kind of making a name for themselves in sports without just being pretty. I mean, she's obviously a beautiful girl, but uh, yeah, poor Aaron Andrews. Uh, my last story is a sad story. Uh, it's before my time, but Joe Frazier, who is one of the people you can call without a doubt a legend in his sport, passed away at the age of 67 of liver cancer. Uh, he did just about everything you could ever do in boxing. In 64, he won a gold medal in the Olympics. He won three go golden gloves. Heavyweight champion of the world. Heavyweight champion. Uh, he beat Ali. Uh, never beat a... Foreman, I don't believe, but Foreman was kind of in his prime as Frazier was getting a little bit older. Uh, somewhat of the inspiration for the film Rocky, which I didn't know, but I found out. Um, yeah, sad, sad thing uh, that he passed away. He, they played his uh, 
voicemail message on Opie and Anthony because his voicemail still talks about how he's the guy that he does like a float like a butterfly, sting like a bee uh, parody. And he talks about how he's the one that knocked out Ali. And he he was a real likable, blue-collar, everyman type of guy that just happened to be one of the best ever at what he did. From Philadelphia, uh, there's a great documentary that ES, no HBO did called The Thriller in Manila that covers his side of the story. Uh, Muhammad Ali really treated him very poorly at times in their lives. Oh, yeah. Joe Frazier was the guy who took Muhammad Ali's championship belt after it was stripped from him when he refused to be a part of Vietnam. Uh, there's many people who have spoken out in the last couple of days. Manny Pacquiao, one of the great fighters today, made a statement and said boxing lost a great champion and the sport lost a great ambassador. Uh, let's see. Who else has stepped out to comment? Muhammad Ali uh, commented last night. I heard it on SportsCenter saying that, you know, he would be remembered as one of the great, great fighters of all time. So here on episode 50 of the Sportscasters, we want to take a second to remember Joe Frazier, one of the greats of all time. And if nothing else, this has inspired me to learn more about Joe Frazier, one of our close friends and former guest, Tim Graham, who's a really big boxing guy knows Frazier, has written about Frazier, and if you follow Tim Graham on Twitter, he has linked uh, a couple of uh, articles that he's written about Joe, and it's a good time. You know, I'm sp- I've been spending the last week learning about Walter Payton, right. one of the all-time greats in the NFL, preparing for our interview with Joe Perlman next week about his book, Sweetness, and you know, I think maybe my next step will be to learn more about Joe Frazier, because it seems like he's lived a really interesting life. 67 isn't old enough. It's too bad that he passed away. The sports world's going to miss him. And, uh, you know, I hope that his death hasn't been overshadowed by all of this foolishness at Penn State. Yeah, timing couldn't be worse for that. So a moment of silence for Joe Frazier here on the Sportscasters, and we will be right back with Mike Tirico from ESPN's Monday Night Football. Our next guest is from Ann Arbor, Michigan, and is a graduate of the famed Newhouse School of Communication at Syracuse University. At Syracuse, he hosted a radio show on WAER, and his first guest was fellow Newhouse graduate Bob Costas. In 1991, he joined ESPN as a Sports Center anchor. Since joining ESPN, he has covered ESPN's Thursday Night College Football, college basketball, the NBA, PGA golf, and of course, Monday Night Football. A warm welcome to episode 50 of the Sportscasters to the very talented Mike Tirico. How are you doing today, Mike Tirico? Hi, I'm doing fine. Nice to be on your 50th show. Well, very few things last 50 shows these days, so congratulations to you. Uh, thank you. We really appreciate that. And, uh, you know, we've been thinking about this 50th show for a while, you know, probably since around, I don't know, the 40th show. And uh, we really wanted uh, to do something special, and having Mike Tirico on the show certainly qualifies. There's a lot I want to ask you about, and I kind of want to start with something personal. And I'm a big Saints fan. I know that's weird. I'm from Buffalo, New York. Uh, It just happened when I was a kid. It's my dad's fault. Uh, My mom blames him. But I've been a diehard Saints fan for a long time. 
And one of my greatest memories, there's two really as a sports fan. There's the Tracy Porter pick six in the Super Bowl. Right. And then there's the Steve Gleason punt block on Monday Night Football. And I want to talk about that for a minute because it was an amazing night for anyone who's a Saints fan, for anyone who's ever been to New Orleans, for anyone who's lived in New Orleans, who lived at New Orleans at the time. And I guess I want to just kind of ask you uh, kind of to tell us a little bit of how that night kind of played out through your eyes, the pageantry of it, and just everything about that night. Sure. Well, you know, you have Katrina in August of 05, and it it wipes out uh, an entire half a ward there, the Lower Ninth in New Orleans, and the devastation was incredible, and you could see the remnants. It's just not right even today, not just that area, but the city as a whole. The population never came back to where it was in July of 05 in New Orleans. And the Saints were nomads that 05 season. Jim Hazlitt, who's now Washington's defensive coordinator, was their head coach, and they played at a San Antonio, played home games in Baton Rouge, played a home game at Giants Stadium against the Giants. So it was so odd uh, to the way the, the entirety of their season played out. 06, they hire, as they decide we're going back to New Orleans. In 06, they hire uh, Sean Payton, who was offered other jobs. A lot of people thought he was going to get the Green Bay job, of all. Yeah. Uh, and then Drew Brees is looking for Miami or New Orleans, the last two. And Miami decides to go with Dante Culpepper. They're worried about Brees' shoulder, and Brees ends up in New Orleans. And Sean Payton's taking him around New Orleans and gets lost as he's driving him around. So just so many things built up. So the Saints go on the road. They win their first two games. And here we are, week three, and they're reopening the Superdome. And 13 months before, the Superdome was a place of last refuge. Um, there were just calamity everywhere in New Orleans, even beyond that lower ninth. And the Superdome was the one place they thought everybody was safe, and even that sprung a leak along the way and lost power. So you fast forward 13 months later, it was the first sign to America that New Orleans was open again for business. And everybody got to see that. U2 and Green Day played, former President George Bush, 41st President Bush was on hand. Uh, Other dignitaries from football, from politics, from the uh, pop culture world, U2, the super band, big party outside the Superdome, kind of a Welcome back to New Orleans. And then they're playing Michael Vick and the Atlanta Falcons. The Falcons go three and out. And on that punt on fourth down, the fourth snap of the game, they come in and uh, Steve Gleason blocks the kick. It's recovered for a touchdown. Saints go on to win the game, continue a terrific season where they lose in the playoffs to Chicago and the divisional playoffs in Chicago. But that night for me was probably my favorite Monday night football game, my favorite event I've ever been a part of because it was more than a sporting event. It uh, was a sign to the world that New Orleans could come back post-Katrina. You know, obscure players make plays on Monday night football all the time. I, I don't know if there's been a play as big as that one with two more obscure players than Steve Gleason and Curtis Deloche, who scored the touchdown. Uh, you know, do those guys stick out in your mind? And I don't know if you're f- you know, familiar with what's happened to Gleason yes. since and, and the battle that he's fighting now, a very public one. Uh, we talked about it on this show before. Team Gleason, you know, God bless them. But do, do Deloche and, uh, and, and Gleason, do they stick out to you? Are, are those names that you'll always remember because of that moment? No doubt. And when I heard about Steve Gleason, they had kept it quiet for a while, his illness. When I heard about it, it really kind of stopped me in my tracks. Whoa, because 
such a great athlete, such a moment. And when he was on the field in the beginning of the season with Drew Brees, and you know, I, I teared up just watching Drew and everybody else get emotional, showing Gleason coming out there on the field with the illness he's battling. It is um, there are guys who make plays at certain moments who have otherwise anonymous careers that you remember forever. And, and for those two guys making that play specifically, yeah, I do, I do remember them, and uh, we'll remember them forever. And uh, I was thankful I was able to find them. Uh, who see their numbers clearly and be able to give them a, a shout-out before they scored a touchdown because uh, I just thought I was so joyed that we could let America hear the reaction of pure, I don't want to say joy, but this is the outpouring of happiness and the cheering and the passion in the cheering. Uh, when New Orleans scored. I, I thought it was one of the great moments, and I don't think we said anything for about a minute until the extra point yeah. was kicked. And It was it was, uh, it was a fun night, and I'll never forget it. And those are the moments that make our job uh, so unique and so special and so fun because you get a small window on the world. It doesn't personally impact you. It impacts so many people, and then all of a sudden you realize you're caught up in the same emotion of the moment, even though you're truly there to document the event. It's uh, it's something you'll remember for a long time. And we should thank Scott Fujita for not picking up the fumble on third down, because if he would have picked that up, we would have never had that moment. But you know, good memory, you're right. The words, look out, are just in my mind forever. I'll, I'll never, th- those words will never go away from me, and I've watched this clip but thousands of times <laughs> and uh you know you didn't say a lot and you kind of you kind of touched on this but this is a broadcasting question how important was it for you to kind of get out of the moment as quickly as possible as you said and kind of let the people of new orleans almost take over the broadcast for a second and sure it, how key is that in broadcasting in general to kind of use the crowd as maybe like a fourth fourth member of the booth yeah, I think philosophically broadcasts in general go back and forth on it. You know, right now on our Monday Night Football shows and a lot of the NFL shows, the analysts are jumping right in to do analysis of a play. I happen to be a big fan of when a big moment happens to shut up and get out of the way. Uh, and it doesn't mean that the analysts, what they're going to add, is not particularly unique, and especially next to a guy like John Gruden who sees these plays work as they're happening. Um, for me... To be out of the moment a bit and let the crowd share the moment because that was not a, a Saints touchdown, it was a touchdown for New Orleans. And I really have, uh, I've always felt that when a big moment happens, call it as accurately as possible. If you miss a little detail there, you can fill it in on the back end. But nothing does say celebration like a reaction of a crowd. And I happen to love that. And I love the, the sound of a cheering crowd. Where else do you get 65, 75,000 people? as one with the same emotion when they're making noise to get a defensive stop on third down or after a touchdown. And I just think those moments play better. And I really came across this around golf. Nothing forces you to the edge of your couch or your seat and really get your eyes where you're not blinking and you're focused on the moment like silence. It just makes you wait in anticipation. There's no better buildup for a big play than the crowd rising, uh, their crescendo uh, leading up to the snap in the play. And I, I happen to like that. And in a three-man booth, I think the rules are a little bit different, and you have to uh, play differently. But I know when I do a basketball game with Hubie Brown, if we do a playoff game, if a team hits a big hoop 
and uh, we'll say, you know, timeout, or I'll say timeout, whichever team it is. I just kind of lay out. And a lot of times we'll go right to commercial without another word said because nothing we can say can be better than that noise you hear from the crowd. Uh, yeah, well, I don't know if I'll ever get a chance to thank Jim Nance for his great call on the Tracy Porter pick, but this is a sincere thank you from a longtime Saints fan for making that moment perfect. Uh, I want to move on, uh, I wanted, but I want to stick with Monday Night Football for a couple seconds. And, you know, ESPN pays a lot of money for, for Monday Night Football, and I'm sure NBC, they pay a lot of money for Sunday Night Football. But, you know, one perk that NBC gets that ESPN does and is the chance to kind of tinker with the schedule later in the season. You guys mm-hmm. don't get that luxury, but, you know, as I look at the schedule, it seems like there's games that are there that before the season we would have thought would have been potentially great. Like, before the season we might have said, yeah, you know, the NFC West might not be great, but St. Louis and Seattle is, could be a battle for that first place in that division. You know, and now those te- that, that game could be the weakest on the schedule. Whereas you might have looked at the, the schedule and said, well, then, you know, the next week we got Pittsburgh and San Francisco. But, you know, I, I don't know if San Francisco is going to be very good and that could be a, a squash. I mean, and, and now that could be the best game left on the schedule. How do you approach just kind of looking at the schedule before the season? And, uh, you know, have you learned that in this league everything's so unpredictable that you, you really can't judge a game until – almost right up until it, because, you know, so much is unpredictable in this league. I think you can't judge a game until the game is being played. And and let me go backwards here and deal with a couple of your points. NBC does have the flex scheduling on Sunday nights. On Monday night, you don't. The long-held belief has been it's very difficult to take a game and change its date of play. Uh, you can change the time, but to change it from a Sunday game to a Monday game because of logistics and travel, teams book their travel and their hotels months in advance to try and change on two weeks' notice another day in hotels in big cities where real things happen, like conventions and business on a Monday. You know, try to try to book another block of uh, for the teams and the officials and TV. Try to book 200 rooms for a Monday in Chicago or in New York on a week's notice. Uh, it, it's impossible. Right. So there are logistic reasons why you can't mess with the Monday uh, schedule. I do think you could take one game about eight weeks out, like by week six, and tinker with it. And St. Louis and S- Seattle was probably the first time in my five years that you would take a game late in the season, and by week six, hey, this game's not going to be very competitive in terms of have playoff meaning or implications. Um, here's what I've learned with the schedule. You know, you, you sit there and you look at the schedule and go, boy, this is going to be a great game. Boy, this is going to be a great game. When you see Chicago-Minnesota on the schedule, you think that's going to be a really good game. Okay, Donovan McNabb's in Minnesota, Adrian Peterson, Jared Allen, the Bears of Cutler, the NFC North games are always good. And NBC had a dog game. And then you have the, you have the, oh, the Colts. And you had Indianapolis on your schedule. Really? Wow. I mean, that's always a great game. Indianapolis and New Orleans. It's Peyton Manning going back to New Orleans. And that turned out to be the most lopsided primetime game that's been played in almost 20 years. So you can look at the schedule all you want. You have no idea if you have a game until the game starts. Baltimore and Jacksonville, uh, you have a Jacksonville team coming off an eight-win season last year. Who knew they were going to dump their quarterback uh, a week before the season started, five days before? And they played Baltimore. And Baltimore should have blown them out. And the final score was 12-7. Jacksonville beat Baltimore. So... I've come to learn over time. You have no idea when you walk in the booth. You have a, you have a, an inkling. You have a lean. Your studying leads you to believe 
what's likely to happen, but you have no idea how this thing's going to play out until the ball's kicked off. And to me, that that's the beauty of the closeness of the National Football League and the beauty of our job in sport. You know, by and large, if you watch a drama for an hour, you're going to kind of figure out at some point they're going to get the bad guy. It's just a matter of how. Football, you sit down, you think the Colts are going to lose, but one of these days they're going to win. And you'd be surprised how it happens and why it happens. And that's what I think has made sports so valuable these days because it's DVR proof. You, you, you can't sit there and go, well, I'll watch it tomorrow night when I come back home and have some time. You need, kind of need to watch it right now because you'll find out the result and see the highlights a few hours later. Yeah, and you know, to your point, a perfect example is last week you guys had Kansas City and San Diego. Kansas City wins. It looks like their season is on track, and this week they get blown right. out by Miami. You know, so, so last thing, last result you would have figured is maybe Miami winning a close game, but thirty-one to three, not in your life, right? You know, and the Kansas City team that beat San Diego, you figure they'll beat winless Miami. They'll probably beat Denver, and we'll turn around and see them in New England in a couple of weeks, and they'll be six and three in time for the division lead. Not so much. <laughs> uh, you guys had a return to Detroit this year that seemed to have uh, just an insane buildup. What was the energy like in Detroit, and how fun is it to do a game? You know, the, uh, Monday Night Football means so much just by saying the words Monday Night Football. And when a team has been apart from it, you know, in Buffalo, we had a game against Dallas a few years ago where there was a similar return to Monday Night Football and there was mm-hmm. this buzz around it. What was it like to be in Detroit and to have Monday Night Football finally back after 10 years and to have them play as well as they did and win that game? Was was that the most fun you've had so far this season? or? Uh, you know, every, every week has its certain fun elements, you know, and, and enjoyable elements. It was great to go back to Arrowhead. It had been a while since the main Monday Night Football game was there. I had not done a Monday Night Football game there. We did the uh, second game of a doubleheader this past year at Arrowhead, or the year before. It started the 2010 season with San Diego and Kansas City. So to go back to Arrowhead with our main Monday Night Football game was uh, exciting there, too, because the fans were anticipating it. You know, it's like playing hooky. A lot of people take the day off from work or truncate their day. They'll come out in the afternoon. They'll party and uh, really look, look forward to the game. So that, that creates an air of excitement around the games. Plus, the players juice it up on Monday nights because they know every one of their peers is watching. If you play on Sunday night football, and this is, this is not a, a competition of which one has more relevance, uh, the, most, the highest rated game is the game that airs late Sunday afternoon on Fox or CBS, right. and then usually Sunday night and then Monday night in there. Um, the Sunday night game, you have a lot of players who are traveling back. They've just played. They're having dinner with their family. They don't necessarily catch that game if you play in the late afternoon 4.15 window uh, for the Sunday night game. Monday night, everybody's watching. All your peers in the league, the coaches who are game planning for the next week, they'll stop for an hour, a couple hours. Uh, the other broadcasters, everybody in the league stops because on Monday night, it's the only night every week of the season except for the last week. The only night where there's one game, and that's it. And the rest of the league is sitting at home watching. And that's what uh, has made Monday Night Special for 42 years and will continue to retain that uniqueness uh, going forward. So, you know, you look at the schedule, and do you see a game that doesn't look very good? Yeah, something may happen in that single Seattle game that's never happened before in the history of the NFL. And, and that's where you show up. Now, do you get more excited when you see Giants in New Orleans, probably two first-place teams, Pittsburgh, San Francisco to, could be two of the top five teams in the NFL when they meet in week 15 
Atlanta, New Orleans could be for the division, could be for a number two seed. Yeah, those are the games you get excited about as you build up to it. Once the game kicks off, usually something great happens. Yeah, and you know, just uh, you know, hey, there's going to be millions of Oklahoma Sooner fans around the country who can't wait to watch Sam Bradford play against Seattle that night. You know, just as an example of what could make that game great. Uh, you and, know, and, and and all the uh, Tavares Jackson fans, the oh, yeah, the, yeah, the millions, too, yeah, right? absolutely. <laughs> uh, you know, the booth is something that has changed a bit since you became the broadcaster there, and it seems I'm not going to ask you to look back because. That's been talked about and documented. Fine. But it seems no it seems like where you are now is 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 almost a great place. It's like Gruden is this guy who could be the next Madden. It just seems like he's got all the talent and all the skills and, and Jaws is someone that we've always known from when he started doing that second doubleheader game. We've always wanted to hear more. And it seems like this booth gets better and better and better each week. Is, is this the best Monday Night Football booth, you think, since you've been a part of it? And um, do, you, do, do you feel the chemistry getting better every week? And one last, uh, thing, yeah. about, one well, last thing about it is, do you get Gruden, nervous that Gruden's going to leave you guys? Like, does that... Yeah. Well, let, let, let me start that. You know, people have been saying every week for the last three years, hey, John's going to be taking this job or that job. Right. And every day we've had people write stories of John. I was buying a house somewhere, and John was looking for real estate here and there. But you never read the story that, you know, John John didn't take that job. So there's been, uh, regarding John's future as a coach, there's been a, a lot of poor reporting and not a lot of uh, people putting their hands in the air and saying, you know what? I threw out a wild rumor that was wrong uh, when it comes to that. And I've had, you know, I've had a, a backroom seat to it, so I really have an appreciation for what was true and some of the stuff that really came from out of left field and poorly sourced. Um, I think John's going to do this for a while. I really do. Uh, I think John will coach again at some point, but he's a young man. He's still in his 40s. He's won a Super Bowl, and he is really special at this and loves doing it and loves being on the air and loves traveling around and still keeping in contact with the league. He's as current and as informed and prepared as any broadcaster doing it. I'd say he's more, he's more in tune with today's game than any other analyst doing it. And uh, I know that because teams, teams have him come in and visit with them as the season goes on. The coaches will spend extra time with John so they can confirm what they're seeing, what they're doing. So John's, John's more dialed in than anybody in that chair. And Jaws, as you said, I've worked with Jaws for almost 18 years now since he started at ESPN. And Ron has a, a great passion and work ethic that's unmatched uh, by, by almost anybody else who's been around ESPN covering the NFL that long, watching all of his film and tape, his NFL films, time and relationships. So we have a unique combo. And you, know, you mentioned Tony. I think we did some great things with Tony. What I love with Kornheiser, when, when we had Tony in the booth with Joe Theismann for the first year and Jaws for two after that, well, what we were trying to do is, as a company, try to do something different. Try to do something to differentiate the Monday night broadcast from the other 13 shows that were on week in, week out, or 15 shows, I guess it would be. And... It wasn't as received as maybe some people thought, and I think in large part that's because in what Tony brings is a great big-picture perspective to it. When you get big-picture perspective on the NFL for 24 hours a day, six days a week, and 20 and a half hours on that seventh day, when you get the game to three and a half hours, you've got the game. And 
to have people there next to you who can speak specifically to what's happening on the field. For whatever reason, people love to hear about the X's and O's of football. And to have people who can give you that, I think, is what the appetite of the country is. And instead of doing this larger, overarching broadcast with big themes and celebrities and all of that stuff, which is what Monday Night was back a couple of generations ago, I think fans really like to have the hardcore football a little bit more. I'm thrilled and proud, not only of those three years, but that I work in a place that's willing to try something different. And say, you know what, guys? We tried this. It wasn't as good as we can do. But now we're going to try to do it the best we can with the model that everybody else is doing, the football model. And, you know, I, you can make a thousand judgments about the play-by-play guy, but I know I'll take our two analysts with anybody out there doing what they do. And um, I'm really uh, thrilled to be a part of uh, one of an exciting three uh, guys in the booth week to week on Monday nights. How has Twitter changed your role as an announcer, if at all? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. You know, I, 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 let's go back to the NFC Championship game. Green Bay, Chicago. Yeah. Jay Cutler's hurt. There's uh, players, current players, well-known players on Twitter. Maurice Jones uh, say, Yeah, Maurice Jones true, exactly. Yep. Uh, among others, saying that, hey, you know, Cutler should be out there. I can't believe the guy's not out there. I think if, whether it was Fox or the Bears, were more aware of that noise on Twitter and social media during the game. I think it could have been addressed a little bit differently. I think the Bears could have handled it differently if they knew that. Maybe they would have given more information about the injury and gotten more out there. Um, I don't know. I don't know if that would have quieted the, the storm, but I think it would have addressed it. Jay Cutler was really hurt. Um, he had a, a significant sprain of the medial collateral ligament. For competitive reasons, they might not have wanted to give that information out, but in hindsight, I think they've learned, and hopefully NFL teams have learned, that you'd be better off if you did. Now, as for use of Twitter, I think you need to be judicious with it. I think it's a tremendous source of information. Um, I find myself spending more time on Twitter every day, and not necessarily tweeting, because I think there are some people who just tweet constantly, which is wonderful. They like to do it. I like the information I get. I, know I follow people who do NBA, college hoops, college football, NFL, my favorite teams. I follow some of the guys who tweet uh, Syracuse stuff. The news is delivered to you. I think you just need to operate in a world where, and many people don't, I think you need to operate in a world where would you say it on the air? And if you'd say it on the air, then it's okay to tweet it. And if you wouldn't, I don't think you should. Because I think although there's a... a less apparent impact to it, I still think your words are your words and they should be attached to you. So it carries to me maybe not the same reach, but certainly the same weight and implications if you say it on Twitter as if you say it on the air when, you know, 16 or 17 million people are watching on a Monday Night Football game. The Sportscasters are here with Mike Tirico, who you can easily find on Twitter. He is just simply at Mike Tirico. Are you going to miss the NBA this winter if they don't you know, sort things mm-hmm. out. And do you have an opinion well, on the the uh, the battle here? Sure, I, I'm still hopeful that we'll have basketball. I've missed the start of the season. I thought the NBA ended in a great place last year with a lot of big cities: Los Angeles, both teams, Chicago, New York, and even Philadelphia with a bit of a turnaround. Boston, truly excited about the league, and obviously your champions in Dallas, San Antonio, still with Duncan Ginobili and Parker. 
I thought we had a lot of teams with a lot of juice. I, I thought it would have been a great start to the season, a great place to finish off. And nationally, I think people were engaged by the storylines. So it's disappointing that we've missed anything. We will not have a full season. There'll be an asterisk next win. Um, that's disappointing. Because right? David Stern said it'll take 30 days to get going. So here we are approaching you know, mid-November. We're looking at the earliest we can start would be mid-December. You know, I've said all along I thought the NBA would roll the ball out on Christmas Day. Uh, I'm just a guess. Uh, we'll see what happens. On, on the other, on the other front, with that, you know, here's where I stand. I think you have four factions that are trying to get to two, which is trying to get to one deal. I think you have the rank and file players and the superstar players with the powerful agents. I think the rank and file players, who are the four, five, six year career guys, want to get a deal done and get in because they're not going to have money like this ever in their pockets. They'll never get the money back they lose for the week, the month, or the year that they're out. I think the big-time guys want to protect their future for these huge mega-deals that they sign and still be able to sign those kind of contracts. I think on the ownership side, you have teams like the New Yorks, the Bostons, the big markets that want to play tomorrow. And well, Let's take this deal and go. And I think you have the smaller markets who really want to get to a model like the NHL has, where costs are controlled, where you can make money. You're almost uh, an idiot if you don't make money. And I think they'd love to see that. And if it means shutting her down for a year, that probably is something they can live with, like the NHL did. I don't think they want to do it, but I think some of them are so determined to be financially successful that they'd like to see that happen. So I think you've got four camps. If the four can get to two, then the two have a great chance to get to one. So whoever on each side is responsible for bringing the troops in line, I think that's the place where this deal can get done. You know, I was thinking about something. In 1994, the New York Rangers won the Stanley Cup for the first time in 40 years, and it was joyous. The next year, the New Jersey Devils won the Stanley Cup in kind of a, a straight, short, shortened season. It was the first time they ever won it, but it just didn't seem the same. I was thinking the other day, what would happen if the NBA plays like a 30- or 40-game season, and then LeBron James finally gets his ring and doesn't win another one? Do you, do you think that that would... Would hurt his legacy? Do you think it would cheapen the ring at all? Or it, yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I think it's, it's an interesting question you pose. I think you have three ifs there. You know, what would have happened if David Robinson and Tim Duncan would not have won in '03? Would '99 have always been seen as a well? It was a strike shortened season, right. kind of for some people. But you know, let, let me throw this argument out. This is where I've been sitting on this. If you started Christmas and you play a 50-game schedule, or 52 games, where you only play within your conference, and you don't cross over and play those two games against the 15 teams in the other league. You have less TV inventory, because you don't get the Lakers playing Miami twice, the Lakers playing Boston, and those cool kind of games like that. But what you get are legitimately, over a 50-game sample, the best eight teams in the East and the best eight teams in the West. And you play within that to get a uh, playoffs and a, a champion. I think that's a legitimate season. I think if they play 52 games and no crossover games with the conference, I would see that as, I would argue that that's a legitimate title, as legitimate as the other titles. Albeit you have 30 less games of wear and tear, injury, bodies, you know, the, the, the grind of the season may impact it, but you know what? It's a very, everybody in your conference has played a fair schedule, so everybody on each side earns their spot one through eight fairly, and I think it would be a best way to go if, if we're looking at a truncated season here. 
The sportscasters are just about done here with Mike Tirico. You can find him on ESPN as the uh, lead broadcaster of Monday Night Football. He also does the NBA. And uh, we're not going to get to golf today, but uh, that's something we look forward to in the spring with Mike. Uh, last question. You know, uh, I think it was about episode 20. We had a guy named James Andrew Miller on here who had written a book. And he said a lot of things. And, you know, the book was long. And there's a lot in there. And, and the only question I want to ask you is, do you think it was fair? And do you think you were treated fairly in the book? Yeah, you know, I didn't read the book, and that's just my personal purview. I've lived through everything that's happened at ESPN, and I, you know, did need to go through the chapter and verse of uh, history of Monday Night Football, everybody who's been through ESPN over time, and at some point I might, but, you know, certainly when the book came out during the summer, we were through the run of basketball playoffs, and I had gone through 21 straight months of work going back to the World Cup. I didn't need to spend another uh, few days reading back the history of ESPN. I've worked there for 21 years now with you know over a couple of thousand people between remote events and studio events. And the people who uh, I've worked with over that time I know have uh, been very special to me in my life. And I count most every one of the people involved there uh, as friends, including a couple of people who have Reports came out, took shots at me and Monday Night Football, people who said critical things in the book. Uh, a lot of those, a couple of those folks reached out to me to apologize for the things they said. And I chose not to make that public, nor will I go any farther because I respect their privacy. So that's, you know, that's all fine and good. I love my job, love the people I work with, try to be as good a teammate as anyone. And I, you know, I challenge anybody out there to go ask uh, any one of the you know, hundred some odd people that I've gotten a chance, lucky enough to work with in all these sports and golf and tennis and soccer and college hoop and NBA and NFL and college football, um, it was, what it was like to work with me over the years. And I would be very, very proud of what they had to say in terms of being a good teammate and being somebody who really loves doing stuff for the fans. But we, we do this job. It's, I guess, something that we would do as fans. You sit back, you watch games, except we're lucky enough to get paid. So our job is to be a conduit to the athletes and the teams for the fans. And if, they, if you walk away and you can help them enjoy a game, then I think you've done your job. And this whole uh, culture of rating sportscasters and uh, going into who's your favorite, who's the best, who's it? there's so much subjectivity in it. We all have our personal favorites, but I think the coverage of our industry is uh, at, at times humors me. And you know what? I, I don't live to be judged by critics as this guy's the number two sportscaster or the number four. I live by go out, do the best job you can, represent your company best you can, and uh, hopefully at the end of the day come back for another good game down the line. Last question, if they make that thing into a movie and you, you got the chance, I guess they're going to, and you had the chance to cast Mike Tirico, is there someone that you dream that would uh, be the most stugly and handsome Mike Tirico on the big screen? Well, uh, well, luckily, luckily, Hollywood does not turn out uh, many guys as ugly as me. So I, <laughs> I have no idea. If I, if I could upgrade and get one of the great stars, sure, why not? I'm, I'm actually, this is maybe bizarre, I don't know, I don't know how much, what you are, I'm not a big movie guy, I don't go to a bunch of movies at all, um, some kids movies with my kids during the summer, but I'm not, a, I'm not a big Hollywood and movie guy, I spend most of my time on current events, news, uh, books, biographies, 
newspapers and obviously, you know, with all the sports I cover, a whole bunch of sports, there's not a lot of time to movies. So I wouldn't have a great answer to say there's a guy I know who's out there acting who would play my role very well. So I'm sorry I don't have a great answer <laughs> for you, but I'll leave that to the, uh, to the cinemaphiles of your audience to cast. Mike Trico, thank you very much for making episode 50 of the Sportscasters as special as you made that night in 2006 when the Saints reopened the Superdome for me. I really appreciate it. <laughs> nice to say thank you. I'll think of you when I go to New Orleans in a few weeks for the Giants game the Monday after Thanksgiving and uh, have another good 50 episodes, and I'll, uh, I'll be glad to join you for number 100. Thank you, Mr. Trico. Mike, thank you. My pleasure. My pleasure. But I hope it went well. I hope it was what you needed. Absolutely. Have a nice flight. Continue success to you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Huge thank you to Mike Tirico for making episode 50 as special as it is. He was a professional. I also want to thank from ESPN. Uh, there's a guy that we contact named Bill Hoffheimer. And to be honest, he worked very hard with me to make this happen. And he didn't have to do that. Uh, I think we've probably emailed in the last three weeks about 15 or 20 times. He worked very hard to make that interview happen. I really appreciate it. He's a pleasure to work with. And I want to thank him as well as Mr. Trico for being on episode 50. Okay. As for the book club, which is our next piece of business today. Before we get into what we're reading and where we're going from there with that, we have a book to give away. Uh, last week, we said that we were going to give away a copy of Jane Levy's The Last Boy on paperback, and we received, oh, I don't know, about 50, 60 or so entries from people all over the country and North America who were interested in winning a copy of the book. And Don is going to pull a name out and announce the winner right now of The Last Boy. Okay, the name I have pulled is Ryan Beasley. So if I hope I'm saying that right, Ryan Beasley will get that sent out to you ASAP. Ryan Beasley, ironically, is the owner of the Nova Scotia Nailers, the team in our fantasy football league. Oh. So congratulations to Ryan. He's a Canadian, so he's going to cost me some money. I have to ship this thing internationally <laughs> now. But congratulations to Ryan on winning, and thank you to everyone else who tried. We're going to have another book to give away, and we'll announce that during Pick 4 today on the show. As for the book club, Jeff Pierman's book, Sweetness, may be the best book that has ever been a part of this book club. Really? It's incredible. That's high praise. I'm learning stuff that I would never have imagined learning about Walter Payton. I usually have read the book for one or two hours a night when I plan on reading maybe one chapter for 20 minutes. It's taken, a, it's taken me away from the iPad, which isn't easy to do. <laughs> Instead of spending the last two or three hours of my night on the iPad, I've been spending it in this book. I recommend this book more than any book I've ever recommended on this show so far. I can't wait to talk to Jeff about it next week. He's going to be on the show to talk about it. Make sure you read it. Make sure you buy it for your dad for Christmas. Uh, make this book a part of your life. It'll be worth it. If you like reading books at all, this is one you want to read. So we will spend a large portion of the show next week talking to Jeff about it. 
getting into the particulars. And I'm going to write a column about my opinion as to whether or not Walter Payton should still have his name attached to the NFL's Man of the Year award. Hmm. And if you've read a page of this book, you'll know why that is becoming a controversy. So read Sweetness. Don't listen to anyone who only spent 15 minutes reading the small part of the book that was in SI and attack Perlman for exposing what is nothing more than the truth about someone that we thought we knew everything about and we didn't. You know, so right, that, right. that happens in sports. We hold these guys up to such a pedestal. And sometimes when you dig deep, you find out that it's not what you thought. So we're going to do more on that next week. But we have plenty to do today, including an interview with the great Dave Damashek. We'll take a break and be back with Dave. Give us some late round sleepers. Some guys that people aren't talking about that you were trying to key when you had your draft the, uh, this morning. Was there some guys that you were looking for in the late round that are kind of under the radar? Uh, DeMarco Murray is uh, oh. the, the kid out of Oklahoma. Oklahoma, all-time so, leading touchdown. To, More touch- right. went, to, went, to, went to the Cowboys um, as a third-round pick. He was young. I did not, um, not believe in him. Our next guest is from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and is a graduate of Shadyside High School and Indiana University. He has worked in television, producing pages for Jimmy Kimmel Live, Sports Geniuses, and The Man Show. He is also a pioneer in the podcasting industry, having hosted Damashek On Demand for ESPN, The Dave Damashek Show, powered by AccuScore, Days of Thunder for the Ace Broadcasting Network, and his current show, the Dave Damaschek Football Program on NFL.com. He also writes a blog for NFL.com, produces a weekly shame report, and rules on the uniforms worn on NFL fields across the country. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the very great and distinguished Dave Damaschek. How are you doing today, Dave? Swell, fellas. First of all, kudos and muzzle tub to you guys. Episode number 50. It's quite a feat. And, um, yeah, you know, listen, I, I appreciate you throwing the, um, you guys do the best intros in the business. <laughs> and uh, you even brought in a little sound bite that made me sound good. I'm glad you cherry-picked the DeMarco Murray advice and left out all the other crap that I threw <laughs> out. You throw enough stuff against the wall, something's going to stick, I guess. So tell me that you kept DeMarco Murray on your bench long enough to be rewarded by these last few weeks of excellence. Sadly, I did not take my own advice. Oh, you and did I, But I also mentioned John Baldwin, who, after putting himself out by putting his hand against Thomas Jones' face in the preseason, <laughs> has now started to emerge a little bit for the Chiefs. So those were two good sleeper calls, at least. Now, my fantasy teams are lousy this year. Not a good you know, year for I'll the cool this, cats? I, 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 I'm going to plant this seed with you now. Don't ever. This is the most obvious point you can make, and yet... It's one to, that, that I will never make this mistake on again. I had Aaron Rodgers on my team for three straight seasons. He was gangbusters. This year I figured I'm going to go after running backs or anything other. I, you know, I'm not going to take a uh, quarterback in the first round here in Aaron Rodgers, and it was a mistake. From now until Aaron Rodgers hangs it up, he is the correct choice, period. <laughs> Have you – someone on my Twitter feed – guaranteed that he's going to retire as the greatest quarterback of all time. And I don't know if that's... I said that. I've been saying that all season long. When it is done, 
Aaron Rodgers, it sounds like hyperbole, is going to go down in history as the greatest quarterback of all time. And let me tell you how he's going to accelerate that argument by going undefeated this year. That's what they're going to do. They're going to go 19-0. and That is my sincere feeling. You look at their schedule. The game at Detroit on Thanksgiving is a dandy. It's going to be a great one. It's going to be fun. Finally, a good Thanksgiving game to enjoy out of Detroit. And by the way, the nightcap from uh, Thanksgiving is great, too. It's the Harbaugh boys squaring off against one another. The two despicable fellas going head-to-head there. <laughs> Can't wait to see their handshake after the game. But uh, how about that? Ravens and the Niners. That's going to be a peach, too. But, um, but yes, I, I sincerely believe that the Packers are going to go undefeated. They're awesome. And they are so – what's remarkable about them is how one-dimensional they are. They are all <laughs> about Aaron Rodgers. Yep. Their defense is, is so-so. They have virtually zero running game, although I think they could have one if they really wanted to. But it's all about Aaron Rodgers, and he can just plain outscore you. They score virtually every time they touch the ball. They're awesome, and Aaron Rodgers is awesome, and he is the best quarterback in the history of football, or at least since I've been watching during the Super Bowl era. So I made the point last week on the podcast that he's already better than Brett Favre was in his prime. So I I take it you would agree with that then? I 100% agree with you. Do you think there's anybody? Remember, it was probably a 70-30 split. Maybe I'm even being conservative with that. When Brett Favre announced he wanted to unretire and come back, most uh, Packers fans said, what are Thompson and McCarthy doing? Let him come back, of course. you know, right. you got to let the legend Brett Favre come back. I wonder if there is a living Packers fan who would still stand <laughs> by that. I, I, I imagine not. I agree with you. Who, I mean, their numbers compare – Pretty pretty well. Rodgers compares favorably to Favre's first four years as a starting QB, except that he doesn't throw a third of the interceptions Favre threw. Right. Well, what I said on the podcast was that finally the fans of Green Bay can have a little peace after that big mistake they made years ago when they traded Aaron Brooks to the Saints. That awful mistake that day. Finally, now with the emergence of Rodgers, they can they can have a little peace there. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's true. When I think about when I think about the Packers, I, you know the names that roll off my tongue. You know, so many great quarterbacks: Bart Starr, Brett Favre, Aaron Rodgers, Aaron Brooks. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Hundred yeah. percent. I'm with you. I'm up. I'm with you. Uh, they also had what was the other guy's name? They had a quarterback. It wasn't Chaz Whitehurst. They had some other Whitehurst back in the in the seventies. And they had Matt but, Hasselbeck, uh, right? Or they oh, were. Right. Yeah. They, they, yeah, they had Hasselbeck. Had um, Bart Starr. Uh, Ed Bartstar. They had Lynn oh. Dickey, who wasn't too bad. He threw for 4,000 yards one season back in the 80s. I think it was like 83 or 84. He and James Lofton, with whom you're no doubt familiar up there yep, in yep. western New York. Um, yeah, they, they hooked up and had a pretty nice run there. The Cowboys kept getting in their way. They were a halfway decent team in the mid-80s. You mentioned you're on episode 50, and we always do this with you. Mike Singletary, David Robinson, Jamie Moyer, J.P. Richard. 5-0. That's about yeah. it. <laughs> it's yeah, slim. it's not a great number. No. Not the great, and it's a, that's ironic, isn't it? Shouldn't 50 be a, a number that is steeped in great lore for sports? How many guys do you think would go for 50? And by the way, with everybody, you know, like obviously in Puck, 99 belongs to Gretzky, 66 belongs to 
Lemieux, but everybody else mixes in those oddball numbers over the last. All the Euros love to go 51 and 67. Yeah. Weirdo numbers like that. Birth years. 87, but why does nobody ever go with a 50? A defenseman back there or a goalie with a 5-0 would look pretty nice. Yeah, it's just the two great guys. You know, Singletary, obviously a great in football, and Robinson, great in basketball, and then nobody really. Have you? Yeah. have you had a chance to look at Sweetness at all by Jeff Perlman, the book? I'm reading it right now. Well, I, it's unbelievable. Well, uh, yeah, I had, I, as a matter of fact, about three weeks or so ago, four weeks ago, um, I had him on my podcast. And, oh. uh, yeah, he's, uh, he was a, he's a delightful fella. And, um, yeah, I would, uh, I would uh, especially if you're reading his book, I would highly recommend you track him down. Yeah, he's going to be uh, here next week. He's he's doing it next week. Yep, he'll be on next week. Yep, excellent, excellent. Yeah. Yes, I think you'll uh, you'll enjoy him. Yeah, he's a funny guy. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. Ask him this. I, this is what I didn't ask him, and I really feel bad that I didn't, and I wasn't avoiding tough questions. I tried to really dig into him because you know when the book came out, uh, like I say, a month or so ago, he was getting all sorts of heat from Mike Ditka and Bears fans everywhere. And he, his history, he's written some great books, but he's best known for writing books or columns or whatever about, you know, Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, John Rocker. He wrote the infamous John right. Rocker piece for Sports Illustrated. The 86 he always Mets. writes about these guys. Or he wrote, wrote about the, the 80s Mets, you yep. know, a bunch of ne'er-do-well with the early 90s Cowboys, a bunch of bad guys. And so it, it is an interesting question that I would say throw at him is, what what made him choose to write about Walter Payton? Because it sounds on face a little weird. I asked him why did he did he have any sense that Walter Payton was gonna that this was gonna yield such um, juicy you know salacious stuff about this this legendary guy? And he said he had no do- idea at all about it. But it does beg the question: Then why would you choose him? Because based on your track record, you love to tell the story of you know these these. Um, great players who are bad guys off the field, why would you choose Walter Payton, who, like I say, on face, it was nothing but a good guy, just a legendary sort of guy. So and you ask know, him that one. Yeah, and you know, just to add to that, there's already been two books written about Walter Payton. He had his own autobiography, and then his kids and his wife wrote a book after the fact. So it's almost like part of his goal was to uh, I mean, if you're going to write another book, you're going to want to try to. Con- you're not going to rewrite those books. So he had to have an inkling that there was some kind of other information out there that would made it worthwhile. Exactly. Yeah, I think uh, I would uh, agree. Just and, and like I say, his own um, his own history is to focus on not you know not on sweetheart guys like uh, which is what people consider Walter Payton to be. Um, yeah, it's interesting, but he has some great, he brings, you know, he's a USFL aficionado as am I, which I love the app about, and uh, he also loves the game that I wish they would bring back, the um, college football all-stars against the defending Super Bowl champions. How right. awesome would it be if that game were played every year? How yeah. great, I mean, of course it would never happen, but how excellent would it be if they, that game, they played that game up through, I think, 77 or 78, too. Can You're you imagine Steelers. if we had Andrew Luck and... Uh, and all the Heisman guys out there playing against, say, the Green Bay Packers, how much fun would that be? And your Steelers were the team that played 
the year that Walter Payton played in that game. He played against That's right. one of your Steelers yeah. teams. Mike, I have a question for you about the, about Walter Payton. Do you think, in light of everything that's come out in the book, that the NFL Man of the Year award should be still be called the Walter Payton Man of the Year award, or do you think that that should maybe be changed now? No, if he was a you know he was uh, still a philanthropic uh, trailblazer for professional athletes, I think yeah, you, would, you, you wouldn't go back and change that. No, I, I certainly can't imagine uh, that that's not, not uh, of course, they, they wouldn't do it, first of all, as I'm sure you know, but you're asking hypothetically, should right. they? Uh, I, no, I, no, that would be crazy, in fact. You know, that would be, imagine imagine what that would open the every Hall of Fame up to, you know, like, you know they always talk about how are we going to let Barry Bonds into the Baseball Hall of Fame? Well, he can never get in. Well, you have Ty Cobb in there. You have guys who are on record as just being bitter, nasty, racist, cheating guys. I mean, what, what, we gonna, if, if you start stripping guys of stuff like that, where would it stop? You, who, who would be left in there? You know, there would be uh, Roger Staubach, and that would be about it. <laughs> uh, let's talk a little bit about all the great stuff you're doing for NFL.com. I kind of mentioned it what? in the open. I'm doing a, I mean, it's so much. What, how are we even going to talk about all of it? There's <laughs> so much great stuff. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I, I agree. I mean, you keep me entertained every week between the podcast you do with Adam Rank, which I think keeps getting better and better, and the stuff on the jerseys. Love Adam and, Rank. You should track him down for this very podcast. I'm sure he, he'd, say he'd be a delightful mirth maker on your podcast. Yeah, I'd love to have him sometime. How do you think the podcast is progressing? You started it in the summer. I mentioned you've had a few different podcasts. Do you think you guys are starting to hit your stride? Do you think that your po- that this podcast you're doing for NFL.com, how would you – I know you love Dave's the Thunder, and you've always raved about the work that you and David Feeney did. Where does this rank in your uh, work as a podcaster, if that's a word? Well, it's two, it's, it's two completely different things. The old podcast, Dave's the Thunder, with David Feeney was, was purely a comedy show. This is now an NFL-sponsored show, so, of course, we don't get nearly as loose. We don't work blue um, there. And But in football season, how do I think it's going? It's going well, but actually, you know, how can how can you do a terrible NFL show? If, all, if you just flip on the microphones and start breaking down a few games and looking ahead to the games coming up, it would be impossible for it not to be interesting. It really is. Yeah, people say it, and it sounds like a cliche, but it's true. It's, still, you know, it's, a, it's a 52-week sport, but once you're in season, especially, every week there's a storyline. Packers and Chargers game last week. Steelers and Ravens last week. What's going to happen to the Patriots? Are the Jets going to get back into this thing? Are the Lions for real? Can the Bills hang in there? So many great storylines, week after week after week. It's 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 easy to do, really. I have to say, not because uh, Rank and I are talented, but because you would have to be, you would basically not be uh, be um, deprived of of the ability to speak. You know, to not be able to do a good uh, a good football program at this point. But yes, I think it's going. Very well, and my only lament is that we don't get to do it more often. I wish we could do two or three episodes in season, but like you say, we're busy with uh, with other stuff. But yes, kudos to Rank. He's uh, he's a terrific uh, co-host. Yes, I enjoy him. I'm glad to hear that uh, you're enjoying him as well. Yeah, I, I, you know, it seems, I, I've said this to you before, but I always wonder, like, do you just show up at these places and just, like, grab a guy by the arm and drag him in? You know, you had the sass and you had... 
Obviously, there's a different scenario with Feeney, but you've had you've it always seems like you find a way to really work well with just other people. Is that something you consider a strength of yours to to be able to not have such an ego that your voice can be the only one heard on the show? Well, I think that um, I think most people are. I always think of uh, of things this way. I always try to keep in mind that uh, as we go through life. We're all the star of our own movie, right? I think that's a good uh, metaphor. Is that, you know, I'm looking at the movie I'm watching is different than yours. I'm the star of my movie. I'm, I'm just a supporting actor. I'm a fringe participant in your big movie. And I, but very few people have, uh, if you ask them, have a completely boring movie going on. You know, because they're the, the, the main character in their movie is, is doing a lot of stuff. So... You know, you just put the focus on those people and let them talk about the main character of their life, which is them. And uh, and most everybody has something to say. Not to say everybody is interesting, because there are certainly some boring people out there. But everybody has some fun uh, idiosyncrasies to kibitz about and uh, and be compelling on the air, I think, at least. You've been doing the Shame Report videos. That's something you do on your own. And obviously the Shame Report isn't exactly a new concept, it's something that you've developed uh, from back when it was called The Jerk List, and now you're at the NFL and you're doing it as The Shame Report. And those videos just, they stand out. Every week I, I get excited when I get the tweet, and I always retweet it right away and check out the video. And that's you where you're, you're, you're kind of an island, you're on an island there. You know, it's, it's everyone's looking at Dave and, and watching Dave and going through these five names or however many people you you pick out is that something you look Stop freaking forward me out you're making me self-conscious everybody's staring at me <laughs> on an island well how am i nude no you're usually clothed quite well usually okay. a nice real All fancy right. suit uh I forgot. yeah uh how is how is it you know what i guess what i'm getting at is when you're on the podcast you're faceless you got a you got a guest host with you when you're doing those videos it's just you I assume you do all the writing for it, and uh, it's your material to either sink or swim. Is it is it more of a challenge than the podcast to do those short videos? No, it's way better. What's what's more fun? Well, the podcast is fun because because you if you want it to be loose, you can't obviously sit down and script every word. Although guys like Colin Cowherd, that's exactly what they do. <laughs> Colin Cowherd literally scripts his work. You know, scripts himself before he goes on the air but for the most part and i think jim rome does that too but how could you do that day after day imagine script it's nice to sit down and just uh flip on the mics and go and know where and know generally what you want to kibitz about on uh, on a given show but yeah the the shame report you know get the crack wise for four or five minutes about the games that we just watched in the nfl of course it's it's loads of fun i've gotten to write uh you know listen i'm lucky to have gotten to write for tv shows too it's it's lots of fun but it's certainly more fun to be writing for yourself and saying what you want to say rather than trying to figure out what your what somebody else might think is funny so that they might say it you follow what i'm saying absolutely so since we talked to you last which was in the summer uh we've one of the big topics we talked about was the pirates and and their season ended uh, but baseball had they a were really... out of by then though right Cause yeah it was just at the end of the like by then, they were about 11 games out, and we were kind of talking about what a bummer it was that it was such a great story for a while, and they fell off. But baseball had a great finish. 
to what seemed like a dead season for a while there. Did you enjoy? Did you get into it at the end? Did you enjoy the World Series? I know you're busy with football, but did you get into any of this I'm, baseball? I I am not proud of saying this. People seem to be proud when they don't know things these days. You know, it used to be a thing that you would get embarrassed about what you don't know. You know, you would try to hide it, like people who didn't know how to read. You know, they would they would play that close to the vest. Or if you told me, if you if you if you asked me about a, a baseball player from 1964 who won the MVP, and I'd never I'd never heard of him, I would try to hide that. I would do my best to disguise the fact that I didn't know who you were talking about. Seems to me, people these days celebrate that. So what? So I don't know. Who cares? I, but with that being said, I'm embarrassed to say. I didn't really watch much of the baseball playoffs. I was distracted with uh, with NFL stuff and with uh, making pages over at the Kimmel Show and everything else. I didn't really sit down. I didn't feel invested in it. I always think it's weird. Over my lifetime, when I, when, you know, when the Penguins make a Stanley Cup run, that's a perfect example. In a city like Pittsburgh, that's much more football-y, or at least traditionally was, when the Penguins suddenly got good and went deep into the playoffs, people were like, yo, man, I'm so psyched to see if Lemieux can get this one done. Like why you you don't know anyone on the team you've never watched the game what is what's it going to mean to you at all if they if they win that's kind of how I felt I felt like I was uh, I was uh, uh, a phony if I started suddenly watching the World Series so yeah no I feel bad but I didn't watch a whole lot of it and in fact I haven't gotten much chance to even tune in to watch a lot of Pittsburgh Penguin hockey but I think that will change as soon as Kid Crosby returns to the ice hopefully sooner rather than later. We all miss Crosby. You mentioned doing uh, doing pages at Kimmel. How how has uh, the mood been around the Kimmel show? Obviously, it was a sad uh, start to the fall for everyone uh, who knows Jim uh, Jimmy Kimmel and has been a part of that show. How's the mood over there? How are things going? It seems like it's as good of a show as it's ever been. It almost seems like it gets better all the time. Is that is that something I you really enjoy? So. It's funny. It's a well. You you, you say it was sad because Uncle Frank passed away. Yeah. he was a delightful, delightful man. It was funny. Everybody said the same story. I went to see him uh, a couple of days uh, before he passed away in the hospital, and I told him and his uh, and his daughters that. And, and it's funny because apparently. 170 people told the exact same story, <laughs> but I always loved what I loved about him. Every time I saw him, he would always say, the, the, the first thing out of his mouth was always like, Dave, how are the kids? How are your kids doing? Tell me about your kids. I'll, I'll give a, tell them you're proud of them. Tell them you're proud, because every, you know, every kid knows that their parents love them, but it's more important. They know that you're proud of them. Tell them that. And they said, oh, that's a great story. And that, But apparently they were patronizing me, because like I say, uh, uh, 28 dozen people had already told him the exact same story. But uh, but I thought that was always a great uh, thing about Uncle Frank. But, yes, uh, what you said is I think the show is better than it's ever been. It's gangbusters. And what's funny is it seems like there's been a sea change in the last year or so, and now people generally acknowledge it that way. It always felt like, yeah, we're, you know, this show's kind of under the radar compared to you know, Latterman and Leno and Conan and, and so on. But suddenly now it's sort of like, oh, yeah, Jimmy Kimmel is now considered the equal of those guys. And, you know, uh, celebrities acknowledge that and, you know, the ratings uh, continue to move up. So, yeah, it's a, you know, it's, a, it's loads of fun over there. I want to get an opinion from you on Grantland. How, how Have you been uh, reading some of the work that they've done over there? I know your your buddies with Simmons. Uh, how do you think uh, Grantland has turned out? 
You know, that's another one. And again, I'm really not being dismissive or, or dodgy. I have not seen a lot of it. My, you know, another guy over there is uh, my man, Jonah Carey, who yep. you've had right. on your show. Yep. And, um, you know, he does gangbusters work. He's, he's, he, to me, is the, is the best. You know, people love Moneyball and everything else. But he cuts that, you know, and he wrote the book, The Extra 2%, about the Tampa Bay Rays. He's, he's to me, is the perfect in-between of deeply knowledgeable. I just recklessly speculate and throw out a bunch of hooey and applesauce. He actually knows what he, he can back up everything he says with deep analytical numbers uh, to support whatever he thinks. But he's also very funny. He's a delightful guy. So, yeah, so I root for him. I root for Simmons. And uh, it's great. I like, I think it's interesting in, the, in this sense that they, Simmons really set the tone for a, a whole generation. Fifteen years ago, everybody now mimics Bill Simmons, and he's, and he's, it's hard to argue that he's not the most influential sports writer, maybe even sports media guy, but certainly sports writer out there. Um, and he sort of turned on a dime. He's always written the, you know, the 5,000-word pieces, but where, where everybody else was going for, you know, started to mimic him with pop culture references and everything else, he sort of turned back to a more classic style. That The whole Grantland vibe is more about retro, uh, you know, a tip of the hat, an homage to sports writers of the past, which I think is kind of cool. And by all accounts, it's doing really well. I know that, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, number of uh, page views and sponsorships and as far as all that kind of stuff goes, I know it does well. So good for those fellas. Yeah, and you know, they don't need our help, obviously, but uh, they, it seems like he's doing a great job in just surrounding himself with great people. I mean, it started with Klosterman, who has a ton of fans on his own, and you mentioned, obviously, Simmons is a driving force, but then he, he adds Jonah Carey, and we all love Jonah Carey, and uh, we talked. We had the chance to talk to Katie Baker, who, who's basically doing the hockey writing mostly there, and she seems like a delight, and we've had Jane Levy on the show twice. She's brilliant and uh you know so there she is and now doing work there so you know it must be nice to just be able to call up a jane levy and say hey come right from my website you know what i mean it, it just it, it and oh it's, boy i mean like i say the guy's got juice he yeah can do what he wants you know he, he does what he wants and this is what he wanted to do and uh you know to show the influence he has espn let him break away basically and more or less play by his own rules. So, yeah, he's uh, he's calling his own shots, which is, I, I think, what he always wanted to do. So we texted a little bit a couple weeks ago when I had the privilege of spending a couple days in your beautiful city of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I got to see your new hockey arena, the Console Energy Center. Glorious, eh? Oh, it's be- beautiful place. Uh, I think they did a great job of – uh, mixing the history of hockey in Pennsylvania uh, with the new b- building. They, I sent you a picture of the Shadyside jersey. I know you're not a big Shadyside guy, but you did go there. Uh, they, <laughs> uh, they have all these jerseys from teams all across the state, from Meadville down to Harrisburg, just all over. And it was a beautiful place to see a game. Uh, my team. Fortunately, is, the only one they miss is a Flyers jersey. Thank goodness, because then I would have to burn the joint down. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's a beautiful place, and I also went to the casino that was built down there. Have you been to this, this oh, casino? I no, I haven't done that yet. Oh, it's it's glorious. They got see in Buffalo, we have casinos, sort of. They're, they most in New York State, they mostly have to go through the Indians, so the Indians run everything. 
And at some of them, it's only slots. Well, in Pittsburgh, I kind of expected it to just be a room full of slot machines. But they have tables in there. There's people playing blackjack, you know. Uh, there's people playing slot machines. It's 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 like Is that a, it's right? Vegas. Can you throw bones in there? Can you roll the dice? Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. And wow, I had no idea. That's right. I always wonder about that because initially, when it was conceived, that's what it was going to be. It was going to only be slots. And I always wonder about that. The people who go, I mean, forget Pittsburgh. Imagine getting on a plane for a vacation. Hey, we're going to save up and fly out in these economically trying times. We're going to fly out to Las Vegas. And these people are they going to enjoy the weather? No, they go and they sit at the at a, in a chair and pull the slot <laughs> all weekend. All weekend they sit there with a bucket of coins. What gives? I mean, that, I can't imagine anything more mind numbing than that. How those people say it was a wonderful vacation. I can't imagine three days later being like, "Wow, what a time!" Can you imagine what a great time we just had? And pulling they, that, uh, pulling that handlebar. Actually, you don't even pull the bar anymore. You just push a little square <laughs> plastic button over and over again. It's ridiculous. Very boring. But the 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 casino in in Pittsburgh is beautiful. You know, it seems like the city in the last I don't know fifteen years or so, they build a beautiful football stadium. They build PNC Park, which I've always said is one of the nicest places in the country to see baseball. They have this great hockey arena. They have a beautiful convention center. They built a new concert venue that American Eagle has something to, to do with that I we drove by it. Obviously, there was no concert going on at the time, but my buddy that lives out there said it's fantastic. Casino, it's, Pittsburgh is really turning it into a world-class city. Of course it is. And who are you to say 15 years? You're, you're not even 15 years old, I don't think, are you? What are you? You're 17. Somewhere in that range. Se- yeah, 17 and yes, a half. listen, Pittsburgh is glorious, and people whose business it is to rate these things, I think Rand McNally has three times in the last decade or something like that named it America's most livable city. So there you go. Rolling, beautiful hills. The the leaves right now are turning. That's got to be wonderful. The the fantastic bridges. The most bridges in any city in the world outside of uh, Venice, Italy. Unbelievable. Yes, and the great, and the great sports tradition. Nice food. Not the greatest food, but if it's late-night food you're after, you can't beat Pittsburgh with Bramantes and the O, the best uh, French fries and hot dogs in the world. Yeah. Yep, I went, I went to the Strip District after the game, went to the original Primanti's. I took your advice. Uh, had the... Um, what did you go? Pastrami? Yep, went to Pastrami. I added egg because uh, you could add oh, egg to any. That's, a, yep. that's the right move to make. You yep. get the right thing by getting the egg on there. The only other alternative in my book, well, you could go roast beef, mm. and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna beat you up for that. But if you don't go pastrami, I say go capicola, and then number three, roast beef. All right, tell us about the Steelers. Tough loss to the Ravens. Obviously, to have that happen in the last minute like that, 92 yards, I think it was. But you're, uh, you're an expert on the NFL now. You're a big fan of the Steelers, and we value your opinion more than just about anyone's. So tell us uh, what's going to happen with the Steelers here the rest of the way. Well, it's a shame in the sense that had they won that game, they would be 7-2 and two right now, and they'd be the number one seed in the AFC. They'd be sitting in great shape, but as it is now, they've got a tough one coming up in Cincinnati. And this one has that, that uh, it called me pessimistic, but this has that weird air of being one of those seasons where the Bengals sneak in the back door while the you know the Ravens are forever fixated on beating the Steelers so good for them so they finally beat 
the Steelers twice in, in the regular season. Although it was, in my book, as you'll see on the Shame Report this week, I found completely absurd and without a shred of dignity to be doing a Gatorade bath on your coach in week nine, <laughs> two weeks before Thanksgiving. What are you doing? You don't sell. Are you Appalachian State? Did you just beat Michigan in the big house? Who dumps Gatorade in the middle of the season unless it's your only win of the year? Dumping Gatorade, ridiculous. But so the Steelers now at six and three probably are. Uh, you know, uh, you know. If I had to bet uh, ten thousand dollars, I would say that uh, there's no chance they win the AFC um, North this year because now the Ravens have the tiebreaker over them. But, if, you know, they lose to the Bengals now and drop to 6-4. and four. They're in real jeopardy of making the playoffs, except for the fact that who else in the AFC is getting in? Look at the South. No one's getting in but the Texans. And, by the way, I think the Texans quietly are the best team in the, in the conference. Nobody talks about them at all, but it's interesting and ironic that these, this was a team that was throwing it all over the place with no running game and no defense, suddenly they're the most traditional sort of team that there is that's successful. They just pound the ball on the ground, at least until Andre Johnson comes back, and they have no competition in that division. So they should wind up with, at worst, the second seed in the conference when it's all said. They really shouldn't. How many games should they lose from here on out, especially, like I say, with Andre Johnson coming back, presumably in good health? And then the West is atrocious. No team's over 500 there. And so... It comes down to, for the playoff spots, three spots maybe from the north between the Ravens, Bengals, Steelers, and then the east comes down to the Patriots, Jets, and uh, and the Buffalo Bills, who I hate to say it. I'm not trying to rub it in. I know you guys are sitting in uh, western New York, even though you like the Saints. Uh, I, I feel like they're going to fade. It was a great story, but they're <laughs> deficient in some fundamental ways. I agree with but you. I do think, I, but I, I also think, that their defense has some really great pieces in it, and I, you know, I figured that that was going to happen going into the year that they might not be dominant against the run. But you just drop a guy like that, like Marcel Darius, right in the middle there. It, you know, it's not one of those positions that he has to be a seasoned vet to be effective. He just is a big, uh, you know, a big strong guy right in the middle of uh, right standing over the center there. It's going to make it tougher to run. But I don't think they're going to hang in necessarily. I don't think they're going to completely fall on their face, but I think when it's all said and done, it, you know, 9-7, and seven, let's say. And so, then this game in the East between the Patriots and the Jets this weekend becomes monumental for what how, how these uh, how these wild-card seeds are going to play out. If 